You're listening to the City Lights Podcast. City Lights is a church located in Greenville, South Carolina, devoted to building family, blessing neighbors, and bringing good news to the nations. Thanks for joining us. I had a, a, a joyful time um, having some relatives come in from Fort Wayne, Indiana this last weekend. We went up to a place called Pearson Falls. Uh, you got to love South Carolina. If you travel outside South Carolina, you realize what you got. You don't know what you got until you're out of it. But there's awesome, obviously, waterfalls, places to hike around here if you're new here, and beaches and stuff. You can go to Charleston. And we went to a place called Pearson Falls, and uh, Kyra, actually, we went to the top of it, and we were taking pictures, and this is just, I guess, the Lord's anointing on Kyra. Kyra gets picked to take a picture of this couple right in front of the falls, and uh, just as she takes it, the guy leans over and says, hey, when you take this picture, I want you to swing over to video and record it, because I'm about to propose. And so Kyra became the, uh, the, the um, engagement photographer just at the, at the snap of a finger like that. Um, we were hanging out with Jane and Lainey um, Meehan, who live in Fort Wayne, and um, I have lots of aunts and cousins, and we're, we're pretty tight, I mean, close, even though we live far away, and, um, and so, then you guys remember, it was 2017, if you guys have been here for that long, um, I remember coming in on Sunday announcing that um, Jane's oldest son, Frankie, had passed away at the age of 17 in his sleep from a seizure, and, um, and so, I'd actually not seen them since going to Fort Wayne to visit them, and so it was good to talk to them, because Mothers, even when the children pass away, like, they carry their kids forever. And so visiting with them was like visiting with him. And so it was about sharing stories and talking about he'd love to be here and just talking about Halloween costumes and things like that. And, um, and God's close to the brokenhearted. And when we're close to people that are close to the brokenhearted, we get close to him. And there's a way that we sort of see the thinness of life and the depth of his grace and his mercy, even in painful things. And so everyone, I think, probably has had somebody in this room, you know, like a grandfather, somebody that has passed away, you know, in old age, and everyone's probably been to a funeral too, but um, it's something exceptional, isn't it, to be close to somebody that has um, died an untimely death, uh, whether it be, you know, cancer, whether it be because of a car accident, whether it be because of, of murder or something like that. I mean, there's something about looking death in the eye that changes a person, it shakes a person, it shapes a person forever. Uh, a mother, a father, a sibling, a husband, a wife, you know, you just can't move on from that without being shaped. And so... Um, and so in this, this chapter, Genesis 23, uh, it opens up with the passing away of Sarah. It mentions that Sarah is 127 years old when she passes away. It's the first mention and the only mention of a woman's age at, uh, at their passing, which could be just because you just don't talk about women's ages in general. But uh, it also has a significant point because it marks the end of an era. It's the first time that the word weep is used in Abraham's terms. Abraham weeps over his wife. And so the reason why I think that the age is mentioned is because... Um, it's essentially saying that even the patriarchs and the heroes of the, of the faith are still having to face the fall and death and the curse. Genesis 3 said that when Adam and Eve took the fruit, they ate it, that they were surely going to die. And so they experienced that gradually and then ultimately, that the, the Holy Spirit could not contend with flesh any longer, and the age uh, got shorter and shorter to about 120s or so. And so in Genesis 5, when we flip over past there, we see a whole genealogy of people that go, I think, from like Adam, you know, through Seth and into Noah. And uh, it has a bunch of, you know, Hebrew names that we couldn't pronounce, and I just look silly as I read them as your pastor. Um, and their age is next to them. But the most significant thing is not the age or the name, but the fact that the sentence after each name is, and they died, and they died, and they died, and they died. And we take that for granted. We take for granted to believe that death is a part of life, but it never was supposed to be. Death is a part of the enemy's plan to rob, kill, steal, and destroy. And death is a part of the curse. 
And so when Abraham has to reckon with this idea that his wife was going to die and that he ultimately was going to die, he was not just reckoning with his wife's death, but with the curse overall. And there was a promise in Genesis 3.16 that said that there would be a snake, or there would be a, a, a son of the woman that was going to step on the head of the snake. But at this funeral service, Abraham is reckoning and he's collecting his affairs to realize and remember that that person had not yet come. And he was going to have to die waiting on that promise. This is the way that Hebrews talks about um, most of all of humanity up until this point uh, at the place of death. It says in Hebrews 11 verse 13, all the people that lived according to the promise lived by faith even unto death. They died with faith. They died with faith. Is, is what all these heroes of the faith in the Old Testament and the New Testament do. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers to earth. This is the reality, is that uh, death, because of the curse, has become a part of life. And Abraham is reckoning with this and settling his accounts, knowing that his wife is dying at 127, and soon he would go to meet her. And so you're going to see in this chapter, it seems like something kind of, I don't know, um, you know, irrelevant or whatever, or unmeaningful, you know, we're right next to Genesis, what is it, 22, when Abraham has to take his son Isaac up, up Mount Moriah, you know, and then there's more verses given to this chapter than that chapter, and you're like, why would you spend so many verses on such a mundane task? But what you're going to see is Abraham is going to begin to bargain for the plot of land where his wife is going to be buried, and uh, he is going to catch up right around one-third into the chapter, a resolve a resolve, a conviction that he is not going to settle for any piece of land, that he is insistent on purchasing a plot in the promised land because he wants his wife buried in the promised land. He wants his wife buried in the promised land. And what's that, what that is going to mean is not just a geographical space. We talked about this a little while ago when they first planted the tree um, uh, at Beersheba and, and dug the well at Beersheba. He wants to not just own rights to the water, he wants rights to the land, and he wants to pay full price for it because he doesn't want any discretion or discrepancy over the fact that he is owning that land. And his son will be buried in that land, his son's wife will be buried in his land, his grandson will be buried in that land, and even Joseph, the patriarch Joseph at the end of Genesis, is going to demand that his bones are buried no place else than that place. Because to be buried in the promised land to Abraham was to be buried in the promise. He suspected, like Enoch, he suspected like his son Isaac, that death is not the end. But the promise, the promise of life is life abundant and life eternal, that if God said it, it would be true. And there would become a son, a son that would come from the line, the line that God had promised, and that son would grow up to be effective in stepping on the head of the serpent to create eternal life and abundant life for anyone that would trust. And so Abraham's not just burying a place in Canaan, he's burying himself in the promise. And he's insisting that, that the promise is stronger even than the grips of death. So this is where we are in uh, Genesis uh, 24, 3, rather. Verse 1, Sarah lived to be 127 years old. She died at uh, Kariath, speaking of Hebrew terms, Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. Abram went to mourn for Sarah and weep over her. Verse 3, then Abraham rose and beside his dead wife and spoke to the Hittites. He said, I'm a foreigner and a stranger among you. Sell me some property for a burial site here so I can bury my dead. Verse 5. The Hittites replied to Abraham, Sir, listen to us. You are a mighty prince among us. Bury your dead in the choices of tombs. None of us will refuse his tomb, uh, you his tomb, for burying your dead. So one of the uh, word plays, there's a few words here that help to unpack the meaning. There's two different occasions of, of rose. There's about five, or five to seven different occasions of the term bury your dead and five terms of listen. And so there's, these words are, are design patterns and they help us understand what the author is getting out. Uh, kind of like the soundtrack. They help to set a tone and a context for what's going on. 
And that word rose, if you, if you see it, it's going to happen as he rises from the deathbed of Sarah and then rises to go speak to the Hittites, is a, a word that indicates uh, Abraham's faithfully moving forward beyond weeping for his wife. So it's a picture of him, him, him acknowledging the, the, the pains of death, coming to terms with the, the current curse. It's, it's, it's facing it full on. It's weeping. The way that Jesus wept is that Abraham is not running from the curse. He's reckoning with the curse. And he's understanding that the curse is hitting us all and it's unavoidable. And he's accepting that fact. And so he has found himself weeping, but it's not staying there and weeping. Is that he's, he is, something has happened in his faith that it's part of the tears. The tears are not a detour from the faith. The, the tears are a vehicle for the faith. And that the, faith, the tears have embedded in him a sense of, of confidence and resolve to move forward. And so it's going to say he rose from that place with intent. With, right, with, with perspective, with conviction, and he's moving forward in his faith. It says he rose and he moves forward. And so this is, this is a, a picture, I believe, of, of what it looks like uh, to see our tears connected with power. In America, we do mad well, we do happy well, we don't do sad well. Because sad means you have to believe that tears can connect to power. The tears don't just have to be whining. They can be wailing, they can be weeping, and you can find and meet power on the other side of weeping. It's not... It's not unholy to weep. It's not unholy to reckon with, with evil and pain and, and admit that grief. We don't do a good enough job of that. And we need to testify to ourselves that the, some of the most influential and powerful people in our lives are people that have learned how to mourn well, to walk through things. The people that have influenced you, I would bet if you did an inventory, have walked through deep pain, have walked through deep pain, not around deep pain, but through deep pain with Jesus, through the valley with Jesus, right? People that have walked through affairs, that's not not part of this world, right? Like when we come into church, we're not escaping something. We're not escaping cancer. We're not escaping danger. And it's not walking around it. It's walking through it. And Abraham's life is testifying to something that power is found in the valley. Power is found in the tears. And he's reminding you and I that this is where our strength comes from. Our help and our strength comes from the Lord. So this is a quote from C.S. Lewis. And I didn't know what it meant when I was 15, Graham, to be honest. My sermon wouldn't have included it, but it includes it now. And as this, that God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks to us in our conscious, consciences, but he shouts to us in our pain. I think you've got to be 40 to know that. I don't know. I don't know how old you have to be, but he doesn't speak to us loudest, I don't believe, honestly, when, when we're on fire and just everything's going great, when we're winning. He speaks to us in the pain, because the pain's the place where life becomes thin, where I'm not in control where I realize that I'm dust and I'm a vapor, and it teaches me that life is not something to be conquered, it's something to trust him in. And so we come out, and we're 15 and 20 and 25 and 30, you know, and we are just ready to just do what our parents never did, and we're here to win, 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 no matter what. Got money on my mind, or whatever that is. And then life gets a hold of us. And if we're lucky, we let it, we let it wash over us, that we might mourn in his presence and find power in his strength. And, and, and so this is the deal. He is a megaphone in our pain. He is a megaphone in our pain. And so uh, I, I was, um, counseling is great. You shouldn't trust anybody that doesn't go to counseling. That's my feeling. We should all be at counseling. It's a good thing. It used to be weird, I think, but it's not. And so I sat down with the counselor, you know, tell me about your life, you know, like tell me the last 10 years of your life. And I just, you know, I'm ripping it off. Here's my timeline. I'm just cruising through and I know everything and I got definitions for everything. And this is what's happening. You know, I've, let me just, let me tell you how I've counseled myself because I'm a professional counselor. That was my attitude. And uh, he listened to everything that I had to say, you know, it was like deaths in the family, like transitions and jobs, like church, like turbulence, like all this stuff. He's going, 
how's your grieving going? I'm like, well, I don't know. I'm not much of a crier. You know what I mean? I'm, I just buckle up and I just move through. And he's like, oh, no, 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 no. Like, there's pain down there. Like, you, you can't just say you're okay and then that becomes the truth. You know? And so that's what we are. We're creatures of self-dependence. And that means we want to move through things at 80 miles an hour. And we don't call things what they are. We were abused. Right? We were neglected. We were betrayed. And we don't want to live there because life's short and we think that life's about trying to get around that stuff, but he's trying to take us through it because that's where we're broken. That's where we're coming to the place of death because we can't have life without it. Jesus says, if you want to keep your life, you got to lose it. David Crowder says, everybody wants to go to heaven, nobody wants to die. It's in the valley that we're broken and it's in the valley that we find our strength and our power. And so Abraham is teaching us in his story to weep and then rise. Is that that's where it is. That's where we are finding our faith resolved. Tears is not a detour. It's a vehicle for our faith. So Abraham rises, it says in verse 7, and bows down before the people of the land, the Hittites. And he said to them, if you're willing to let me bury my dead, then listen to me and intercede with Ephron, the son of Zohar, on my behalf. So he will sell me the cave of Machpelah, which belongs to him and is at that end of the field. Ask him to sell it to me for the full price as a burial site among you. So Abraham, again, I mentioned it as a flyby. He's bargaining with these Hittites. He wants the land. He doesn't want to settle on the price because he doesn't want discrepancy like the thing that happened with the well of Beersheba. He wants everybody to know that he paid the full price for it, more than it's worth. In the company of all the Hittites, he deeded it, and it was legal, and no one can take it back. He is purchasing the promised land. He's putting his stakes in the ground and trusting his real estate comes from the hand of Almighty God, the promise of God that he's based his whole life on. Also, uh, he wants to um, have uh, claims to the land um, ongoing, and so that in the future, his relatives, his sons, 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 can all be buried in the land because being buried in the land means being buried in the promise. Verse 10, Ephron, the Hittite, was sitting among his people, and he replied to Abraham in the hearing of all the Hittites who had come to the gate of the city. Verse 11, no, my Lord, he said, listen to me. I will give you the land, and I will give you the cave that is in it. And so he doesn't actually mean give you the land. It's kind of like when you buy those fake Oakleys in Brooklyn. They're like, no, I'll give it to you. i give it to you. Just $80. You know, I just give it to you. i give it to you. He's not really giving it to him, okay? He's bargaining with him, and he's going to try and uh, finagle him. He's, he's trying to bargain and barter with him. Listen to me. I'll give you the field and give you the cave that's in it. I give it to you in the presence of my people. Bury your dead. Abraham says, I'm not falling for this, because probably you'll just let me, you know, bury my wife there, and then once I'm gone, you'll just take it back. You know, I'm not messing with you. So, verse 12. Again, Abraham bowed down before the people in the land, and he said to Ephron his hearing, Listen to me. Listen, listen, listen. If you will, I will pay the price of the field. Accept it from me so I can bury my dead there. I don't like bargaining. I'm not a bargaining guy. I love CarMax. CarMax is the place where the car is the price, and the price is the car. I don't want to bargain with you. It just makes me feel uncomfortable. My Uncle Cam sings from Hong Kong. In Hong Kong, they bargain for everything. So he's in public just bargaining for steak. He's like, no, cheaper, 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 cheaper. And they're like... Dude, we don't bargain over steak. It's just like, it is what it is. $10 a pound, take it or leave it. You know, cheaper, 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 cheaper. You know, I don't like bargaining because in a sense, bargaining, it's like, you know, you can't do it without lying a little bit, right? I mean, that's what it is. You're basically saying, I won't buy it for anything less than this, but you really will. And they know that you know that they know that you know that they know that you're lying to them. And so the whole thing is a just exercise of losing trust. And I'm a big trust guy and I just don't like that. So anyways... Uh, maybe you're great at it and bless you and so we need you for other things in the future at our church but but there's this there's this bargaining you know agreement that is that is going on and and what you have is an exchange back and forth of this this word listen it means it, it says shema shema is to listen listen and listen uh, is more like Kyra's definition of mine Kyra when, when I say listen I just mean did you hear what I'm saying Kyra she'll tell the kids 
you weren't listening. And I'm like, well, they did listen. They just didn't do. No, she, listening means you do what it, what it said, right? Listening means you do it. It's, it's not just hear, but it's obey. And that's much more the biblical answer, okay? So when God says listen, it doesn't just mean to like hear it and walk away. It means like you really listened, you know, the Shema. You listen. And so Shema is actually the name of the most important Jewish prayer uh, even today. Every morning and every evening, their prayer journal is basically, they put their hand over their eyes, and they say the Shema, which is written on the screen. We'll read it. I'll read it there for you. It's Deuteronomy 6.4. They'll put their hands over their eyes, and they'll say this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord, O God, the Lord is one. Uh, it, it, he, 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 is, he is the one creator God. Like, there isn't polytheistic, lots of gods that compete for things. He is ultimate supreme. He is the one and only creator, and so he is supreme um, over it all. And so listen, 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 Israel. Remember this thing and you're going to the grocery, and you're bargaining for deals, and you're marrying and giving away in marriage. Like, listen to this thing. Remember this thing. This is the anchor of your whole life. Read it every morning and every evening. Tell your kids. Verse 5, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. That's it. That's the Shema. That's what, that's what you're listening to. And so the listen is going back and forth. There's a lowercase listen and a capital listen. And so the guy, the Hittite, Ephron, he says, listen, but then Abraham doesn't really listen. He says, no, you listen. And then he says, listen, and they said, listen. And, and so the, the passage is trying to show us that Abraham is, is a hearing man. I mean, it's not that he's deaf to people. He's listening. He's hearing. He's hearing the Hittite, but he's listening to the Lord. He is a man of, of resolve. He's come from the place of tears and brokenness and a lifetime of faith. And he's given his son Ishmael away, and he's led Isaac up away. And he's looking at that guy trying to bargain with, bargain with him. He's like, I'm not for sale. I've, you've got nothing to give or take from me that I don't already have. He's a man that is rooted in the Shema. So your phone wants your attention, you know? Like they're using your pictures to sell their ads. So you're not the consumer anymore, you're the product. And your picture drives them to the Facebook so that your friends can buy the thing that's on it, right? Every, attention is the only thing that matters anymore in the information age. If they have your attention, they can get your brand, and we don't buy rationally, we buy emotionally. And we buy according to what we like and what we're connected to. And so our phones are just incredibly insatiable hotspots for getting us to listen to something else. We're constantly inundated with nonstop information. Your screen time thing at the end of the day is like, what, four hours a day? It's ridiculous. You know, we're spending seven hours a day on this thing. And it is pastoring us, and it's discipling us, and it demands our attention. Yet every morning and every evening, he would call to you. And he'd say, but you could listen to me. Your life is not for sale. Your life is for love. Your life is to love the Lord your God with all your years, all your heart, and all your strength. And that's the only thing that you're responsible for. That's the only thing you're made for. You are, you, you are, you are made one in him because he's one. The Trinity is one, and he wants oneness in his church and oneness with him. And it's just as simple as this. You wake up in the morning, you cast your cares on him, and you say, my direction is for loving the Lord my God with all my strength and all my heart and all my soul. And the sky's not falling. It's not the end of the world. If somebody says this is the end of the world, they're lying because Jesus didn't know this is the end of the world. There's throngs of, of tribulation. That's what the world's about. Just like, just like having a baby. When you push out a baby, there's, there's labor pains. And we're always in labor pains. Like that's kind of where we're residually at. But today is the day to wake up and love God and love people and make disciples and repeat. And love God and love people and make disciples and repeat. That's the only thing that we, it's not more sophisticated or complicated that God's doing this and God's saying this and I got to do this and I got to do that. We don't listen to the chatter in the market. We listen to the Shema, to love God and love people and make disciples. When you ask your neighbor, you say, how are you doing? They're going to answer, but they don't think you really care. But you do care because God cares for you and you love your neighbor as God loves you. And so you're going to ask a follow-up question and you're going to remember what they say. And you're going to write it down in your prayer journal. 
and you're going to surprise them with love and grace. And you're going to go above and beyond because uh, the, standard, the standard is not just you know, neighborliness and kindness. The standard is Christ. We are treating people the way that Christ treated us. And that's our job. And that's all the most sophisticated thing that we're doing in the marketplace of the bartering and the phones and the politics. They want your vote so badly and they're trying to get you to listen and we're hearing, but we're not listening. We're people of the book. We're people of his word. We're listening. We, we, we are people of the Shema. Verse 14, Ephraim answered Abraham, listen to me, my Lord. The land is worth 400 shekels of silver. But what is that between you and me? You know, we're, we're buddies, we're homies. Bury your dead. Verse 16, Abraham agreed to Ephron's terms and weighed out for him the price he had named in the hearing of the Hittites. You're going to see the text talk a lot about the hearing and the audience because it's just like not just before God but before man as well. This is the promised land. Abraham is burying his wife in the promise and God is faithful to deliver on all of his promises. Death is not the end and that the promise is stronger than even death itself. This is what Abraham believes and it's actually the truest thing uh, in, this, in, in today's um, reality as well. So he's going to barter this thing out to 400 shekels. And it's, uh, historians would probably believe that it's not worth 400. It's probably worth 100 shekels. 400 shekels is like a laborer's whole lifetime's wage, like a guy just working at Starbucks for the rest of his life in a bag and just hand it over for this. It's, it's 400 shekels. is a ton of money. It's a good amount of money. And it's actually only worth 25%. But Aaron's like, no, I'm not, I'm not playing into your economy. I want the full price. I want all of it. I'm putting all, I'm putting all of my money on this promise. Uh, uh, David would say, and I mentioned it last time, in light of sacrifice, he says, let me not bring something to the Lord that's worth, that doesn't cost me something. Abraham's saying, whatever it costs, I'm adjusting not to the stock market, but to his economy, and I'm saying, I'm paying the full price. I'm giving it all. I'm putting all of my eggs in that, in that basket of the promised land, trusting, trusting, trusting that if he says it, it will come to pass. And so, verse 17, so Ephron's field and for all the audience here and all the audience, since this chapter happened, it is established. The promised land is owned by Abraham and his family in that one little pocket there, for, at least for this burial ground. So Ephron's field and uh, Machpel near Mamre, both the field and the cave in it, and all the trees within the borders of the field are deeded, deeded, legal. It's like done, deeded, to Abraham as his property in the presence of the Hittites who had come to the gate of the city. Afterward, Abraham buried his wife Sarah in the cave in the field of Machpelah near Mamre, which is Hebron, in the land of Canaan, the promised land that God had promised to Abraham so long ago. Verse 20, so the field and the cave in it were deeded to Abraham by the Hittites as a burial site. And so this death of Sarah is a, it's a test for Abraham's faith. It is asking Abraham what he believes when it comes to death and the promise. Death is residual. Death is compounding. Death has happened all the way from Genesis 1 to Genesis 24. There's nobody that has not tasted death, not even Abraham, not even the one that's called the covenant family. And he's reckoning with that, reconciling it. He's making a choice. He weeps at his, his wife's uh, bedside, and he has an altar moment right there and decides what he's leaving behind and what he's taking with him. And what he has found in the valley, in the deepest place, is that he has to believe and contend with what God has to say, not what the market has to say. And that is that death does not have the end. Death does not have the end. Death is not the end. Death is the beginning for those that trust. And if God says it, the promise is more important than the economy and the promise is more important than his feelings or what his wife is doing or not doing, he has learned to put, he has learned to put the microphone in God's hand, that God has the final word and therefore Abraham is not for sale. And so he puts all of his stakes in that and he buries his wife and very, very basically himself in the promise. So it's a long passage, but in 1 Corinthians 15, uh, Paul is giving this dissertation to these Epicurean believers who are trying to do Christianity without the afterlife. They're believing in Christ for forgiveness, but they're not believing for, for resurrection. And Paul is riled up 
And uh, he's somewhat calm in some places, but I think he's an eight on the Enneagram. And so he's pretty stirred up. And he's just like, dude, there's no such thing as Christianity without, what are you talking about? There's no such thing as following Jesus without resurrection. Following Jesus without resurrection is like buying a lottery ticket, winning a million dollars, and never going to get them. That's the stupidest thing you could ever do. And then he flips that on his head, and he, he, he puts to us, to us, I think, a very provoking statement. He says, if you're a Christian and you're following Jesus, what you're actually doing is living a life that doesn't make sense if there wasn't resurrection. You are not living half in, half out. You're not living a life that like, might look good and moral and helps me get to where I'm going. And then if it happens to go to heaven, then great. And if it doesn't, now nah, whatever. At least I you know, lived a great life. He's like, no. We are living our life and redefining it in such a way that every moment, from birth to burial, every single moment is putting the full price on him. We are putting our full price on him. We don't want to, we're not giving any kind of discrepancy for who we belong to and where our loyalties lie and all that. No, we are putting the 400 shekels and whatever it takes, whatever we have, we're putting the full price on him because we believe it. He will raise. And if we are buried with him in a death like his, we will be raised with him in a resurrection like his. We are putting the full stakes. We're putting the full price on him. And so an easy conviction question for us today is does your life make sense without the resurrection? Because it shouldn't. Your life should not make sense unless we're getting raised, unless there is eternal things versus finite things, unless we have a perspective of the things that last and the things that don't. And we are calibrating, always, always, not even just at the burial and the funeral and plans and so forth. We're always calibrating according to that reality. We are serving an eternal God with an eternal covenant, and therefore we are people of the everlasting life. And we live that way, and we don't answer to death, and we don't answer to scarcity, and we don't answer to the economy of this world, because his economy has come to set us free and free indeed. And he has come to give it freely to us, that we might just trust and accept him. And so, and so funerals and death and pain are great megaphones for our life, because they make us reckon with the thinness of it. Like, if you go to Universal Studios, you know you walk over there, your favorite set of whatever thing, and you see the house for Family Matters. I don't know what's over there. And you're like, oh, look at the little door in the thing. And then what ha- you take the little golf cart, and you go behind, and what? It's like, it's a plywood. It's like a couple of boards and plywood. And you're like, how did they ever make this thing look real? And I just like, I wanted to grow up in it, and it was just a cardboard box. But somehow they set it up with just the right lights, and they get the camera, and it makes it look like it's a real house, but it's not a real house. And, and going to funerals is like that if we're listening to him. Because we don't have control. We do not. We do not hold the sands of time in our life. And you could be gone tomorrow. And we don't like to deal with that. And that's why we're on our phone so much. Because it keeps us absent-minded. And not thinking about the real stakes. But you're not your own creator. And you don't hold life and death in your hands. And you are thin. And even if you are the richest, strongest person in the world, you are weak compared to him. And that's what happens if we are listening when we go to funeral moments like that. I remember when Kyra's dad passed away at 63, very suddenly, of a heart attack. And, um, and that's so young. I mean, you know, like, it's just, it's so unexpected, and it shakes everything in all the family, and we're still shaking and being shaped by it. And I remember the, the CEOs, these guys, he was a very wealthy guy, very successful, kind of moved on, and the guys, one by one, you would hear the common question, like, okay, so, like, how did, he, how, how did it happen? How did it happen? Like, what was the kind of heart attack, and, like, was, it, was, he, was he exercising, or was he eating, was he smoking, like, He's the healthiest guy, loved his family, exercised every day. It's like, there's nothing, like, because people are at, why are they at, they want to know because they want to figure out how they can mitigate risk. 
but there's no way to mitigate it. You can't keep it out because it's as thick as Genesis 3. It's coming for all of us. And I don't mean to be morbid, but the minute we're born, we started dying. And so the question is not if we're going to die, it's where are we going to be buried? Are we burying ourselves in the casket or in Christ? We're going to bury ourselves in defeat or in hope and in victory. And that's the question before you, is you and your spouse are going to not be in this place in 80 years. And where are you going to put your trust while you're here? And so the, the conversation of death to self is not really about a drill sergeant of you getting over pornography. The conversation of death to self is you planning for your funeral. Dying to self is having the funeral now. It's going there and realizing you can't take it with you and you can't control the years and you can't control your spouse and you can't control really anyone, even on a good day, yourself you can't control. And it's having a funeral for pornography right then and there. That's not in heaven. That's not where I'm headed. It's having a funeral for narcissism. That doesn't belong here and it's not in heaven, so I might as well begin to get ready for the eternal life that I'm heading towards because it's not part of where I'm going. It's not where I'm putting my stake in the ground. It's not where I'm putting my full price. So we spend so much time trying to worship the idols that we have by getting to them through some path of righteousness that we think will elevate us to get to the thing that we want. But the problem is, is that our desire is wrong and that the reality is mixed into some sort of American dream false narrative that's thin as the full house house. And it's not until a death happens or something shakes us that we actually become close to the brokenhearted and therefore close to God and realize what this is all about. It's about dying in a death like him to be raised in a life like his. That's where we are. And so I want to invite you and encourage you, death to self is not about two sumo wrestlers. I used to think it was like a sumo Oliver, you know? The flesh Oliver, you know, over here, and the spirit Oliver, and I'm just rooting that the spirit Oliver wins, you know? <laughs> death is not control, it's surrender. I'll say that again. Death is not control. Dying to self, losing your life, is not about you controlling your wishes. There's discipline to it for sure. But ultimately, it's surrendering because you don't have control in the first place. And you need him. And when you're in that spot and when you can trust him and when you put your full price there, that's the only place your heart can go. And so let us continually die to ourself that we would find heaven, heaven on earth, here, 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 because we've learned to trust him in that way. And so if I could sum it up today for us in terms of a take-home and an application, <clears throat> everything apart from him will burn away. And we know that at funerals. We get that sense. It's not here forever. And everything buried in him will live forever. And so what will you bury in him? That's what, he, that's what he realized when he got done weeping and he rose. Might as well spend the rest of it burying, burying the time. You know, like if you have however many years left, 10, 20, 30, 40 years, it's like be the wise, shrewd servant. Bury your life in your neighbor. Bury your life in the gospel. What is it? Uh, uh, Jim Elliott says, like, he is no fool that gives what he can't keep to inherit what he can't lose. That's what we're doing. We're economists in a way. We're recognizing the true stock market. And we realize the little that we have left and the little control. And it's a choice of seeing it buried in death or buried in life. And Abraham would tell you if he was on the stage to preach to you, bury your life in the promise. Bury it in his promise. His word does not come void. And any cup of cold water any whisper of worship that you ever whispered that nobody ever heard, anytime you did the right thing when nobody was looking, anytime that you bounced your eyes off of an attractive woman and chose purity, he saw it, and it will live forever. And so everybody dies. We are all dying. It's unavoidable. The question is, is where will we be buried? Buried in our hopes and dreams or buried in the promise? 
He's inviting us. Let's bury ourselves. Let's just bury your life in the promise. Bury your time. Bury your heart, your emotions, your priorities. None of it's for naught. None of it is lost. Teaching a child, celebrating somebody else's victory, not being self-focused, giving yourself away, spending time with your kids, like talking to them, really talking to them. These are the things that matter when you're at funerals. These are the things that matter when we see where death really leads and where death can lead in him. The intentional question today is, what will you give away that you can keep, that you can't keep, in order that you might gain what you can't lose? And I'll give that credit, of course, to Jim Elliott, not that profound, to think of things like this. Uh, But what will you give away that you can't keep so that you can gain what you can't lose? His economy is not like ours, and he's not willing to barter or trade. He wants the full price. And uh, it's free, but it costs everything in the best of ways. And when we die to ourselves and ultimately die, ultimately, like, we're not really losing. He wants to give to us. He wants to inherit in our eternal life and actually be free and actually be human and actually live the way we were created to be in the beginning. Thanks again for joining us. If you have been encouraged or challenged by this message, please give us feedback by leaving a comment on this podcast. For more information on our church, visit us at www.citylights.cc. 